Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our passage for today comes from Psalm 51. Listen for what God is saying to you. A Psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to, came to him just after he had been with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, God, according to your faithful love. Wipe away my wrongdoings according to your great compassion. Wash me completely clean of my guilt. Purify me from my sin. Because I know my wrongdoings. My sin is always right in front of me. I've sinned against you, you alone. I've committed evil in your sight. That's why you are justified when you render your verdict, completely correct when you issue your judgment. Yes, I was born in guilt, in sin, from the moment my mother conceived me. And yes, you want truth in the most hidden places. You teach me wisdom in the most secret space. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and celebration again. Let the bones you crushed rejoice once more. Hide your face from my sins. Wipe away all my guilty deeds. Create a clean heart for me, God. Put a new, faithful spirit deep inside me. Please don't throw me out of your presence. Please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Return the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach wrongdoers your ways and sinners will come back to you. Deliver me from violence, God, God of my salvation, so that my tongue can sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will proclaim your praise. You don't want sacrifices. If I gave an entirely burned offering, you wouldn't be pleased. A broken spirit is my sacrifice, God. You won't despise a heart, God, that is broken and crushed. Do good things for Zion by your favor. Rebuild Jerusalem's walls. Then you will again want sacrifices of righteousness, entirely burned offerings and complete offerings. Then bulls will again be sacrificed on your altar. May God add a blessing to the understanding and living out of this scripture. Please join me in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for the gift of this morning that we can come together in worship and seeking greater, deeper understanding of, of truth in this world as you... Um, guide us and help us to both make sense of those things, but also sit in the mystery of them um, when sense is not enough to help us understand who and how you are. Ready our hearts, open our minds, um, make vulnerable our spirits to receive what it is that you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So earlier this week, uh, I headed to the dentist for an annual checkup, and almost as if my mouth had access to my Google Calendar, one of my molars started to feel sort of throbby in my mouth. And that throb felt like it was going to cost me. And I wasn't sure if I was ready to hear that number. Briefly, I thought about delaying my appointment, but being the grown person I am, I marched grimly toward that plastic-covered reclining chair. And while that's not really what we're here to talk about today, um, the reason why I'm sharing this, beyond the special offering we'll be taking later, um, <laughs> is that there is a term for what was going on within me, um, even, as, even as small as it was, psychologically speaking. Information avoidance. 
Information avoidance is when we take action to avoid certain information that might leave us feeling some kind of way, as the people put it. It could be information about how many calories are in this slice of cake, or how much damage to your bank account your recent vacation did, or it could be about putting off your dentist appointment because that toothache that's sneaking up feels like it might be awfully expensive. But these are all just hypotheticals. Now, information avoidance has a couple of cousins. Uh, confirmation bias, which we've talked about before, um, that is gravitating toward information that confirms our pre-existing beliefs or assumptions. And desirability bias, which is like confirmation bias, but it's a bias that's more about what we want to be true more than what we assume to be true. Information avoidance, confirmation bias, desirability bias. These were all at work one way or another in the events that led up to our passage this morning. If you were paying attention during our scripture reading, like I know you all were, um, you might have noticed this preface at the beginning, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him just after he had been with Bathsheba. Now, if you know about David, you know about David. Uh, he is like the EGOT of kings. He's got the Emmy, the Grammy, the Oscar, and the Tony of Jewish life. He had courage, he had battlefield skills, dance moves, bedroom moves, and to top it off, he was a smoking hot musician and poet and was basically BFFs with God. People didn't just love David, they adored him. And let's be honest, no matter how humble you are, if enough people over enough time keep telling you how amazing you are and how you can't do anything wrong, it's really, really, really tempting to believe them, if only just a little. And if you believe them just a little more every day, it gets more and more difficult to separate adoration and praise from reason and reality. And even more than that, it gets harder, harder to hear something different. So when we read this psalm, it's important to take this preface into account because this psalm marks a moment when David's personal BS detector was severely recalibrated. If you don't know the backstory, here's a recap. David sees this beautiful woman named Bathsheba bathing on her rooftop and decides he wants in on that action. He finds out that she's the wife of one of his best soldiers and commanders, Uriah, but he decides he just can't hold back. So he invites her to his place for a nice glass of Manischewitz wine and, and proceeds to <laughs> tap that. And she goes home, and in a few weeks, re she realizes that she's pregnant. She tells David, and David says, girl, I got you. He calls Uriah from the battlefield for a conjugal visit, but Uriah doesn't want conjugations while his soldiers are still fighting. So the plan is a bust. He moves on to plan B, B for bloody, wherein Jesus, David sends Uriah to the front lines to basically die. And at this point, I'm sure that David is feeling a little dirty, but he's in too deep, right? He waits for the appropriate time for Bathsheba to mourn, and then he marries her and brings her into his household to hang with his other wives. And it's not the way he would have liked to wrap things up, but he can finally put it behind him and pretend that it never happened until Nathan shows up. Now, Nathan was a prophet in the time of David's reign. His job was to help David realize God's work through his leadership. And Nathan first shows up in scripture a few chapters before when David goes to him and says he wants to build a temple for God to dwell in. And Nathan comes back with these words from God that basically say, that's cool and all, but I have a different plan for you. I'm going to make your name great, and through you, I'm going to create a safe place for my people to live and flourish. That's my plan for you. Now, God has held up God's end of the bargain, but David has failed miserably. 
Not just that he has failed morally or even faithfully, which is something that the story is careful to point out in multiple ways. He stays back from battle, even though the story own, uh, opens by saying it was the season for kings to be out in battle. Instead, David sends a representative to do his work for him. He sleeps with Bathsheba, um, and by doing so, David violates purity laws around a woman's monthly cycle. And so these are, are clues to the reader that David has really slipped spiritually. But it's not just that. David has completely violated the unique and critical purpose for which God had set him toward. He has utterly failed to provide a safe and stable place for God's people to flourish. He abuses his power to call a married woman into his home for a presumably non-consensual adulterous act. He sends Uriah back to battle with a letter dictating his own death sentence. And he denies others the opportunity to properly mourn Uriah, someone who was uh, well-regarded and well-loved. And it's all of this, but I think especially these last three points that has Nathan pulling out his earrings and coming for David with all of his prophetic fire and might. Because while it's one thing for David to cop out uh, on his spiritual practices, it's a whole other thing for him to take his God-given authority and use it not just for his benefit, but to disrupt, dismantle, and destroy the very people whose lives he has been charged to help flourish. And so Nathan reads David up and down with the fullness of someone whose pension plan was completely vested in Enron, Uber, and the state of Illinois. He has nothing <laughs> left to lose and everything to give. And give it to David, he did. Nathan's inventory of David's spiritual bankruptcy is so thorough that David has nothing left of pretense, illusions, or defenses to offer. He's been confronted with himself, and he knows that the tabulation is correct. For many people, it would be enough to send them into complete self-destruction. But for David, though, his response is this psalm. Psalm 51 is how we know that there is some small shred or sliver of faith left in David because instead of self-harm or self-destruction, David turns to God. It's a confession to God, not really or specific or about the Bathsheba-Uriah situation, but to who he had allowed himself to become. It's a confession of the forces that are deeply at work within him and around him that allowed him to stay in this place of information avoidance for so long. It was an acknowledgement that he had allowed himself to be wooed by the spiritually toxic twin lures of confirmation and desirability bias. He's determined to name himself and all of those things that are at work within him. So he employs three of the four available Hebrew words that exist for sin right off the bat. Iniquity, transgressions, and evil. Wash me from my iniquity. I know my transgressions are before me, and I have done what is evil in your sight. David pulls no punches because he knows he's pulled enough. He's as clear-eyed about himself as he can manage to be. But if I stopped there, his confession, but if he, it stopped there, his confession would be incomplete. Because confession is about more than who I am. It's also about who God is. So then right there, before this three-word self-assessment, David begins with three other words, words that he knows reflect God's character. Mercy, faithful love, and compassion. And this is just the beginning. David goes on to unpack all the ways that he has participated in iniquities, transgressions, and evil, 
under God's watchful eye. But confession isn't only about being honest with ourselves and clearing the air between us and God and us and others. It's not just a spiritual detox. Confession is the technology that our tradition offers, not only as a way out of our mess, but a way through it. It's our roadmap through. It's the vehicle we can use to be honest with ourselves while also knowing how to be honest with God and with those around us. When we practice confession, we don't do it out of a fear of rejection, and we don't do it just to get it over with. We do it in order to own up to how much destruction we've allowed ourselves to call normal in our lives. We do it to understand the fullness of who we are and the fullness of who God is. We do it in order to pull ourselves and our relationships back together so that we can once again go about the business of God's wholeness of life work in this world. There's a word that David uses when he talks about what his restored self would look like, and I'm sorry it's not going to be up here, but in Hebrew it's the word emet, which can be translated as true or truth or faithful. So uh, put a new faithful or true spirit deep inside of me um, is how it gets translated um, here. A clean, and a, faithful, a clean heart and a faithful spirit. This is the goal of confession to God. So many of us have been taught that perfection and rightness is the goal. Perfection and rightness is the goal. But God isn't looking for perfect people. God is looking for true and faithful people. Perfection makes us harsh and judgmental and unforgiving with ourselves and with others. Faithfulness, though, faithfulness, a, a, true, a spirit of truth is tenacious and generous and committed to God's project of seeing the world flourish. This is what God created David for. And this is what God created each one of us for, to help the world flourish. That includes ourselves and everyone around us and all of creation. David had completely lost sight of this. He stopped flourishing, and as he withered away spiritually, the people he was charged to care for stopped flourishing too. Have you ever, or have you, how have you lost sight of your purpose to flourish in every way? To help others and all of creation flourish? How have you lost sight of these things? What information might you be avoiding? What biases are clouding your vision and judgment? When he woke up and realized what he had done, there wasn't much David could do to change his past, but there was plenty he could do to change his future. It started with harsh truth, an honest inventory, and a confession. Thank God for Nathan in his life. And thank God for God's mercy, faithful love, and compassion. That those things together could create a way for him, for David to get through it all. Who are the Nathans in your life? Who are the people who will love you enough to tell you the truth about yourself? Who are the people that you trust enough to receive that truth from? Now, if you don't have someone or someone's in your life like that, people who remind you what you're for, people who will hold you to it and love you through it, if you don't have people like that in your life, well, you've come to the right place. A community that is committed to help each other and the world we live in flourish. This is who we strive to be. We don't do it perfectly. We don't do it consistently, but we do strive toward it. This is what we seek to do at UBC. We do this in small groups and intentional relationships, and even in worship and service, in study and in fellowship. 
Confession is about confronting ourselves, but it's also about writing a relationship with ourselves and with others and with God. It's about moving closer to God and God's purposes. If it were anyone else, we would have good reason to feel anxious and afraid and reluctant to confess. But with God, we don't need to feel those things. What we need is grief at a fractured relationship and deep sincerity toward repairing it, vulnerability and honesty. And we can do this because God is merciful. We can do this because God won't rub our faces in it and say, I told you so. We can do this because God is faithfully loving and because God is compassionate, because God is for us in in our total health and wholeness, because God is for us and wants to partner with us in rebuilding and building a world where wholeness of life for all isn't just possible, but an actual reality lived out with our daily lives and in every space where we find ourselves. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for the technology of confession, that you provide us a way out of the messes that we make in our lives, as big or as small as they may be. We thank you, God, that you provide us a way forward when it feels like we have come to the end of ourselves. And we thank you for people like Nathan. We ask that if we don't have, I ask that if The folks in this space don't have a Nathan in their life, a truth teller who loves them and wants to see them flourish and wants to to see them live into your purposes. God, I pray that you would bring a Nathan into each of our lives. Help us to be people of courage, courageous enough to face ourselves and courageous enough to receive the harsh love that we might need to receive from time to time. Courageous enough to turn to you knowing that you will receive us with mercy, compassion, and faithful love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. But you taught me to come home. 